With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick, the founder of Figured Out Baseball. Uh, here with another Figured Out Baseball podcast, we've got Wayne Mazzoni on the phone with us today. Uh, Wayne is a, the current pitching coach at Sacred Heart University, a Division I school in Fairfield, Connecticut, a part of the Northeast Conference. Uh, I'll give you a bit of a background on Coach Mazzoni before we jump into questions with him, but we're really lucky to have him here today. I'm excited to get into things. Uh, I love talking pitching with guys because I was a, not a pitching coach myself, so I like picking the brains of, of pitching coaches just to kind of see what I can learn and, and hopefully share some good information. So a little bit about on, uh, on Coach Mazzoni's background. He is a Northport, Long Island native. He's a 1991 graduate of Gettysburg College. At Gettysburg, he played football as a freshman and then played baseball his last three years. Uh, he was an outfielder and a left-handed pitcher. Excuse me. He's a 1992. Um, in 1992, he took his first coaching job as a graduate assistant at Nova Southeastern, which is a Division II school in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. That year, 1992, the team went 42-14. and 14. From 1993 to 1996, Coach Mazzoni was the pitching coach at Fairfield University, Division I school in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. In 1996, he had a 25th round draft pick, uh, and then he took a, actually took a break from college coaching from 1997 to 1999. Uh, he spent his time as an author and a speaker. He authored several books in that time, and still that's something that, that is, uh, is pretty close uh, to him, which I'm sure we'll get into that later. Got back into coaching for the spring of 2000, in the spring of 2002 until 2005. He was the head coach at Post University, which is a Division II school in Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, he turned a team around there that won six games in 1998 to set a school record for wins several times in his tenure there. 2006, he became the pitching coach at Holy Cross, got back into, Divi into Division One at that time. Holy Cross is a Division One in Worcester, Massachusetts. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, kind of a little nugget there. In, in 2006, Coach Mazzoni actually coached Matt Blake, who is now the pitching coach, the new pitching coach for the New York Yankees. Uh, kind of a cool little tidbit. And then from 2006 until present, he's been the pitching coach at Sacred Heart University. Uh, in his time there, he's the team has been to the conference championship eight of the last ten years. They've won three conference championships in that stretch. Coach Mazzoni at Sacred Heart has had four pitchers that have moved on to play pro ball, including an eighth rounder in 2014. And then Troy Scribner actually became the first Sacred Heart pitcher to pitch in the major leagues when he made his debut for the Angels in 2017. His pitchers also include the 2011 Conference Rookie of the Year. He's had nine pitchers on the all-conference team. Um, the Sacred Heart pitchers in, in Coach Mazzoni's tenure have also set the school record for wins and ERA several times while he's been there. He's a well-known speaker uh, at baseball conventions. In fact, we've got him on the phone here today on his way to a high school to speak about recruiting, which is one of the topics that he's very passionate about. He's the author of several books on recruiting, on the mental game, um, uh, playing college baseball, and, and how to get to have an opportunity to play college baseball. He's also big into private instruction. Uh, he, does, he does both online 
in uh, online instruction as well as uh, in-person instruction at a local facility. Coach Bazzoni, uh, we're very, very glad to have you here today, and I just appreciate your time very much. Well, with that introduction, I might have to hire you to come and uh, introduce me at all my various speeches. That was unbelievable. I'd be happy to travel with you. Very <laughs> happy to. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, well, let's let's get right into it. I'd like to start, Coach, with um, kind of touching on some things from resumes that stick out to me. And and the first thing, uh, actually, just going uh, in order from kind of the kind of where things started for you. You went to Gettysburg College and you started out as a football player and did not play baseball as a freshman and then played baseball your last three years. Would you mind just kind of telling us how, how that transpired or how you, you know, how you came to give up baseball and then flip back you know, to baseball as a, as a sophomore in college? That's a great question. I haven't been asked that one in a while. But really I went there with the, the idea that I would play both for all four years and then very quickly realized that even Division three football was pretty darn competitive and uh, I just got thumped as a freshman. I mean, I was physically beat up running the scout team and just, just some great stories my buddies tell about, you know, me getting thumped on scout team my entire freshman year. But at the end of that year, I was so beat up, I just didn't see how I could continue on and play baseball that spring. Um, so I kind of met with the coaches and said, listen, my, my passion really is with baseball. I'm going to dedicate the rest of my career to doing that and give up football, and that's really what I did. But I wanted to play both and just even at the D3 level, it's tough, really tough. Yeah, I think people discredit sometimes with any sport, really, uh, but I think people that haven't been a part of it or haven't played at that level will look at Division One, Two, II, and Three and think that there's this huge disparity. Uh, and, and you have not coached at the Division Three level, but you, you've played and, and you've also coached at the Division One and Division Two level. From your experience, would you would just kind of tell people that are maybe we have a, you know some kids that are listening out there that are in high school or high school coaches, uh, really what you've seen to be the difference between the different levels? I mean, you can speak from your, your you know, football if you'd like to, but also baseball. Um, just, you know, really what's the difference? How much of a difference is there going from Division One, Two, Three, even NAI of all? Like, where does that fit in? And what, what have you seen just from those levels for yourself? Oh, that's a great question. And I think I think the high school coaches and the travel coaches get it. You know, they understand the difference in levels and how good Division Three is. I, I think before I answer that question that the the parents and the athletes are the ones that don't understand how good Division Three is, mostly because they've never seen it. So they've never watched the team practice or play. They don't realize the talent, the commitment, the size of those Division Three athletes. Um, in my experience – the best guys at the Division three level definitely could play Division one baseball and probably every sport. I think your average guy is definitely missing something in terms of whether it's speed or strength or skill. There's, there's definitely a difference between especially your higher end Division one and Division three, but your average high school baseball player, Joe Average, is not good enough to make your average Division three team, and most people just don't realize that again because not on TV, and they just don't go watch it in person, so they don't know. I think it's what you just said is something that I've heard before on podcasts and just talking with coaches in general, but the real benefit of just going to watch whatever sport you play at various levels, if you want to play baseball in college, go watch a Division One team that's around you, but also go watch a Division Two or Division Three or a junior college team, and, and really that's probably one of the best ways to get an idea to figure out where you fit in. Would you agree with that? A thousand percent. It's probably the best way. And it's something, again, I do a lot of these speeches, and I'll ask people in the audience, you know, how many of you have been out and seen a D1, 2, or 3 
and almost no one. So very few people have seen Division Three, and they're they're making a judgment just from their gut, which is more than likely incorrect. And I you just as a personal uh, story, my brother was three years older than me, and he played Division Two uh, baseball at a nationally ranked Division Two. And maybe it was just because he's my brother, but I always looked at him and thought that I was better than him. So I, I had my I had my mindset on playing Division One, and, and when I got there, it was just a, a much much different level than than you're used to seeing on an everyday uh, everyday basis. So even sometimes having a player next to you uh, that you play alongside who plays at a certain level, that's even uh, sometimes difficult to really get a great uh, a great gauge. So I, I think just you know watching games is is a great way to go about it. Um, yeah, and you see that you see that a lot in summer ball. You know, with summer collegiate leagues, there's a lot of kids from the different levels, even D2 and D3 schools mixed in. Those kids hold their own. Now, obviously, they're the better players at D3, but something happened where they just got overlooked. I mean, we, you know, I don't want to sidetrack us, but we have a kid, probably the best player on our team, started out at a D3 before he transferred in because he got hurt in high school and kind of got overlooked recruiting-wise and then transferred in, and he's an absolute stud. So you just never know. That happens a lot. As, as a former junior college coach, that was like what we lived on in junior college was guys that got overlooked for one reason or another, guys that got hurt um, and, and missed maybe missed their junior year or, or sophomore year, some of the big recruiting years, and, and you can kind of scoop them up that way and get lucky finding a guy. Uh, exactly. There's something else in, in your bio, Coach, that I, I'd like to just ask you, well, kind of related, about multi-sport athletes. So you're somebody who played a couple of sports in college, um, and you got that experience. But I don't know what it was like when you were younger. It, I think everything seems like it's it's you know things get uh, a little more. Um, I don't want to say one sided than as you know. I think people a lot of times will say you know ten years ago or twenty years ago this was way different than it is now. So I, I don't know if this is the case with this. But with multi sport athletes, I believe that there is a push now for kids to really specialize at young ages. And and at least from my perspective, I think that it's maybe because if things are are so competitive, sports are so competitive to try to compete for a scholarship that kids feel like if I don't play this sport all year round, I'm going to get passed up by somebody who does play all year round. And and I think there's probably a bit of legitimacy to that. But what's your take on on kids playing multiple sports? Has it changed over the years? And as a Division One recruiter and pitching coach. You know, what are your feelings and thoughts looking at a high school kid who plays one sport compared to multiple sports? That's a great question. I got a lot of feelings, and I'll, I'll kind of give you the two sides. I think why it's come about is that basically, you know, a lot of people that have started travel teams, I'll just talk about baseball, but, you know, these well-intentioned people that started these travel clubs are doing it because they love coaching. So they want to coach. They're not going to be high school or college coaches, but they start travel programs, and Obviously, that's that's pay for play. So what happens is to run a legitimate business, you have to have enough teams, you have to have multiple seasons, winter training, you have to offer, offer a competitive product. So a lot of these kids have now gotten into playing, you know, more seasons, two seasons of baseball. Sometimes they're, they're playing three seasons of baseball and then training all winter. Um, I think for some kids that's the right move. Um, if they, if they don't love other sports, but for some kids that really loved playing a second sport but have given it up just because they're being pressured into it, you know, you have to do this to be able to play at the next level, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I had a quick conversation with a guy, you know, anyone listening could look him up. His name's Joe Zangi. 
Uh, he's triple-A pitcher with the Mets. Was uh, probably the best, one of the best catchers ever come out of the state of Connecticut high school. Went to UConn first, then transferred to a junior college uh, with a catcher, and the Mets, you know, tr- um, made him into a pitcher. I saw him the other day, and I said, hey, you know, you're a big guy, big, thick guy. I said, did you play football in high school? He goes, up to my sophomore year, then I focused on baseball, and I was told, you know, it's the only way to go play at the next level. And I said, do you regret giving up those last two years? He goes, it's the only regret in my life. I, I, I miss playing. I still dream about playing high school football, he said. So my advice is if you love playing those multiple sports, don't give it up because the coach tells you you need to play fall ball or, or train in the winter only. Um, now, from the perspective of me as the college coach, I'm not any way more excited or less excited if a kid plays one sport or two or three. I'm just looking for good kids that are the best players. But I will have everybody realize that, and maybe they do realize it or, or not. If you give up your second sport, you will never get it back. Once you go to college, you're going to be a one-sport athlete, especially if you're playing at the Division One level. So just don't give it up because you're pressured to do so. If you don't love your second sport and just want to do baseball, it's fine. But many kids wind up completely regretting giving up that other sport. Interesting perspective. And if, if there's a parent listening to this or even a player listening to this who's listening to your words, Coach, and it's still – you know, just, just feeling a pull to, to say, well, yeah, but you know, I, I see all these kids around me that are doing it. Do you think it's a legitimate concern for someone in that position to think that someone training for baseball, I'll say training 12 months out of the year, not that they're playing, but they're, you know, they're, they're lifting for baseball-specific. Uh, they're doing baseball-specific spe- lifts in the winter. They are playing spring, summer, and fall. Do you think that that player – just, you know, speaking honestly and just trying to give people, you know, some, some credible information, do you think that those kids that, that train for one sport all year round are legitimately going to pass up the kid that might only play, you know, high school and, and summer ball and then he gets into to football in the fall and basketball in the winter? Do you think there's a legitimate concern there for parents? And if so, or, you know, parents and players, and if so, how do you overcome that or, or what can be uh, an option for that person to not, to, you know, in order to not get passed up? Well, I'll tell you this. The, the first piece is, you mentioned it. I mean, the, the kid actually doing three sports has become so incredibly rare. So I know what, you know, my son plays football and baseball in high school. I know what the demands are from football, how it's all summer, what it takes during the season. For a kid then to go from football into to basketball and then go play baseball, I, I think is going to be an absolute dinosaur. Um, but at the same time, I do see a lot of those kids just training baseball year-round and I think you just lose a little bit of a competitive edge sometimes. And there's only so many T swings you could take. There's only so many pens and lessons you could take. And there is – you certainly will get better focusing a little bit on one sport compared to, to say, two. But, I mean, my son plays – again, I don't want to make it too personal, but I love that my son plays football. He learns toughness. He learns so many things. And we got back in the cage yesterday, and – he started to hit me. He was like, holy cow, the ball's jumping off my bat. I go, yeah, because you gained 12 pounds during football with lifts three days a week. And, you know, and now you're back in taking these swings. You're, you're, you're pumped to be back in the cage as opposed to going, oh, my God, I got to go back in the cage again. So everyone has to make their own decision. I just wouldn't want parents to actually be thinking, oh, my God, my kid can't play, you know, 
two sports and still play at the college level for baseball. It's just not the case. What do you think about a, a kid, and, and obviously there's a lot to it, but what do you think about a kid because committing is happening so early? You know, kids that are going to Division One schools, it seems like, you know, Power Five type kids are committing as freshmen and sophomores in high school, and, you know, mid-major Division One guys are committing as, as sophomores and, and juniors, which is earlier even than, you know, five years ago when I was coaching. It seems like everything has jumped up a year. But what do you think about a kid uh, potentially, you know, whatever his big recruiting year was, maybe focusing on one sport that year and then going back to a multi-sport thing as a, as a junior, senior after they commit? Is that is that something legitimate that it maybe could be, uh, you know, just a solution to part of the to part of the issue, or is that am I am I kind of off base there? No, I mean I guess that makes some sense, but I mean I know plenty of success stories of kids that played multi-sports that are playing at, you know, big-time colleges and just, you know, again, your summer is your hot and heavy recruiting time. So the fact is if baseball is your number one sport, you need to be playing baseball in the summer. But that shouldn't preclude you from playing a variety of other, you know, if you wanted to play soccer, you wanted to play basketball, you want to wrestle, I think coaches are going to like that. I mean, in our state of Connecticut, the best program is UConn, where Coach Fender's and their staff, they do an unbelievable job. And I, and I know firsthand that he tells kids that he recruits as multiple sport athletes that he wants you to keep doing what you've been doing. He loves what it's made you more athletic. It's taught you so many things you couldn't learn just playing baseball all year round. So uh, there's there's very few coaches I know that would that would try to encourage high school kids to only play baseball. Yeah, I think that's something that's pretty consistent. I, you rarely, if ever – Maybe never, actually, now that I'm kind of thinking about it, but rarely, if ever, hear a college coach saying, I think that you should definitely go down to one sport by this time. I think when you hear college coaches talk about it, it's usually the multi-sport athlete is a good thing. Um, Agreed. So just to kind of touch on another point you just made about playing summer ball, if there's someone, again, listening to this, whether it's a coach or a player or a parent, who really wants to play baseball in college, do you think that it is an absolute necessity at this time, at this point where we are, 2019, 2020, uh, you know, spring of 2020 pretty soon, do you think it's an absolute necessity to play summer ball to get recruited as opposed to people thinking that, well, I'll just I'll play high school baseball and I'll get seen then? Do you think it's an absolute necessity to play summer ball? I would say very much so unless, you, you know, if you're pumped 93 to 95, you're probably good, you know. If you run a six three sixty, or you crush home runs, and you can, and and if you're that good, you're probably going to want to keep playing in the summer because it's fun. You're, <laughs> you're beating everybody. Um, there's very, I mean, I know kids, and and this is its own separate topic. I know kids that play high school don't play summer because they want to showcase themselves, so they go to camps and and they just pick events that are best for their recruiting, which I don't really like because I think they don't get a chance to play baseball enough. It should be fun to play baseball. You get better playing rather than just showcasing. And, and it is a little bit of a red flag when instead of being kind of team-oriented, you're just simply out there trying to get yourself exposure. So I can't recall the last kid that I've recruited or dealt with that didn't legitimately play summer ball, except, you know, after they've committed maybe the summer after their senior year, they're just and, and not playing the summer getting ready for college. But, yeah, it, it would be a little odd if a kid didn't play summer ball. Okay. I was asking that because I, I do uh, – I'm an associate scout, and I saw a kid 
last spring who who really you know I talked to the the player and the parent and, and he wanted to play baseball in college and I kind of asked what his summer plans were and he said I was he was going to play legion but he was also traveling with AAU basketball and I kind of said well, well do you want to play basketball or baseball in college well, I definitely want to play baseball and I and I really encouraged him to get on a travel baseball team because I said you know look around I I go to a lot of high school baseball games and I rarely see a college coach at, at a high school baseball game it's just because you guys are playing at that time of the year and you know the weather at that time of the year is a lot more questionable and um and I, and I just told this player that the majority of recruiting I believe goes on in the summer so I just wanted to get your take on that someone that's still in it you know someone that's uh, that's right there in the front lines yeah w- one just comment on that is and listen legion just like travel teams but legion in its own right it varies very much from town to town i mean there are kids in my neck of the woods that play legion that have a great experience, get a whole lot better, get recruited to play at that next level. And then, of course, there are other Legion programs that never get any exposure and the kids are just playing for fun or whatnot. But I wouldn't say – now, that kid, you know, that is traveling for AAU. That that could be really – for basketball, that could be difficult. And you're right, at some point you have to go, gee, what do I want to do at the next level? And you have to make a, a decision. So that, that – kid needs to, if he wants to play college baseball is going to need to spend more time in a baseball field than a basketball court so if we just kind of stay on the topic of recruiting coach Mazzoni um I, I like to ask the question of what do you look for in recruits you know what do you like uh when you're out there but let's talk specifically about pitching as you are a, a pitching coach um besides well let's let's just touch on velocity first for you as a Division One pitching coach, what velocities do you like to see? And I'd like to get your take on, you know, on, on it's, it's not only velocity, but give me a range that uh, maybe a, a bottom end like this. You need to be at least here, and and as you kind of maybe move up, maybe there are, are different qualities you're looking for, but is there a velocity range that you feel like you need to see maybe from, you know, sophomore, junior recruiting class in high school? Yeah, I, I would say that um, to get any serious, to even move it any bit forward, you know, if, if you're not throwing 82, 83, um, it's just not going to be that interesting. Because, and, and the reality, and this is, boy, we could talk about this for hours and hours. And, you know, is a kid that's throwing 79 with pitchability and three pitches and movement and location, is he probably better than the kid throwing 84 with one pitch? And, and no real off-speed, et cetera, probably. But the fact of the matter is if I see a kid throwing 79 with pitchability in my head, I'll think, well, I'll just find a guy throwing 83, 84 with pitchability. So velocity, if nothing else, is used just to narrow down the list of kids because there's just so many kids pitching a baseball that now you could say, all right, until you're throwing 82, 83, I'm just not all that serious about getting any further and I might say boy I like this kid's delivery I like everything I heard great things about him I love that he plays center field and he's only 79 80 now I'll, I'll keep track of this kid but you know unless you're throwing 82 83 it's just probably not going to get my attention okay that's in the right side I'm assuming or both yeah you know, probably would say both now I mean eventually you know, we run the gamut. I mean, I've, I've had freshmen walk in the door throwing 87, 89, both righty and lefty. But I've had guys, you know, the kid Scribner, you know, came into Sacred Heart throwing 83 from the right side, left throwing 89. He's the only big leaguer we've ever had. So, you know, you, you learn along the way. It's more than velocity. 
obviously if you have certain qualities and then your velocity keeps going up, you become tremendous. But, yeah, I mean, the lefties always can be a little bit lower on the velocity. But, you know, mid-80s, you start getting really into starting to take them seriously. And then if they get to upper 80s, that's kind of where you'd want them. And, and then for us at Sacred Heart, and this is not a slide on our program, but, you know, if I see a guy throwing 92, 93 at an event, I probably wouldn't even waste my time because I'm generally not going to get a kid out of high school throwing 92, 93. He's going to pick a bigger program or he's going to get drafted. So, you know, I want you to throw hard, but, but not too hard. You know? <laughs> that's a great script. Great tip. Uh, all right, so besides velocity, going out and looking for pitchers, what what things, what can a kid do to you to to stand out? Because you're right, there are so many people out there that are that are pitching a baseball that are trying to find a scholarship that want to play Division One baseball. What are some things besides velocity that stand out to you that make you pay more attention to a guy, make you want to have that guy, you know, pitching for you? Yeah, the easy thing is, first of all, command of one or, if not two, legitimate secondary pitches that you will throw at any time. So if I watch a kid, you know, he's throwing 82, 83, 84, and he's in a 2-1 count and he spins a breaking ball, or at 3-1 he throws a changeup, I get crazy excited, right? I mean, because that just shows trust in a secondary pitch. So I'm, I'm looking for, obviously, ability to throw strikes, but also command. But for, it's that guy will have a legitimate go-to secondary pitch and if he's got two go-to secondary pitches that's going to set him way apart of everybody else and that would be step one just there's, my next thing would just be probably athleticism and tempo you know does this kid fun to watch pitch do they command the mound do they pitch with tempo do they move athletically with a good delivery that that kind of thing so it's the way the ball out but also how they kind of their mound presence i guess i would say Okay, I'm going to ask just a, a maybe a dumb question, but I'd like you to expand on, on a couple of those things. Can you can you describe when you say command and being able to throw a ball, you know, a pitch at any at any time at any count? Um, can you describe just go a little more detail about what you mean by when you want to see command from a high school player? What does that mean? I know that last season our two top guys, uh, our main top guy, got. I was out with Tommy John, who's a real legit prospect. So our two top guys became two right-handers, one that's about 82 to 84, the other about 85 to 87. And they were the best guys that I that had all year for one simple reason. They throw any pitch at any time, 2-0 change-ups, 3-1 sliders, 3-2 curveballs. They don't really care. So I know that that's done extremely well for us. Uh, I had a lefty about 84 to 85 that kept LSU scoreless through six throwing any pitch at any time. So when I'm out on the road and I see a kid throwing 82, 83, 84, but I see a 2-0 changeup or I see a 1-0 curveball, I get excited because I know that the, that will directly play successfully at the next level. And, and if that velocity keeps going up while he has that command, uh, command is harder to teach than velocity. You get velocity by mass, by strength, by maturity. Command can be really harder to teach. So I'm more geeked up by a guy throwing two or three pitches for strikes than I am just a guy with sheer velocity without any secondary pitches to back it up. Okay. Does command to you mean that in addition to throwing any pitch in any count, does that mean that that 2-0 pitch needs to be 
a strike? Or does that mean that the the 0-2 or the 1-2 pitch needs to be a pitch that starts in the zone and goes out of the zone? Is that, is that part of command or is it more just kind of like when, when you're describing command is it for a high school player, is it more just being able to throw any pitch in any count and feeling comfortable with it, like having the feel to throw, you know, that you're not afraid to throw a 2-0 changeup? That's a, I mean, that's an excellent question. For me, you know, I ask my guys, I ask uh, kids at camp, so these kids, I'll say, you know, rank your confidence in each one of your pitches on a 1-10 to 10 scale. And the guys that will give me an 8 or above on every pitch that they throw do extremely well. So if a kid says, I have a 9 confidence in my fastball, I can throw in, out, up, down, 2-seam, 4-seam, you know, my curveball is a – is a six and a half and my change up is a three, that's not going to be, it's really going to be great. My change up, I've heard 10,000 times, you know, when are you going to figure out that change up? You want to pitch at the division one level and after division one level, you need a change up. Um, if not, you certainly need absolute command of your breaking ball. So, it's more than just throwing strikes. It's being able to. It's been able to make the ball do what you want it to do. That's the man. Okay. Heard you talk about changeups a, a couple of times here. Is that why you did your your series that you have on figured out baseball right now? Your series of videos is on the changeup. Is, is there a reason why you you started there? I mean, is that is it that important of a pitch to you that you felt like you needed to share what you know about that to anybody who might be watching those videos? Oh, man, that's another great question with a long answer. I mean, it's first the thing that I was best at. So, you know, I threw fastball uh, my whole career to get people out on a changeup, you know, kind of Tom Glavin-esque, if you will, you know. So just showing a lot of fastball, getting people out with a changeup. And I think the changeup is really the, the hardest pitch to hit. It's the hardest to recognize, to pick up. Um, I mean, look at Strasburg, the guy that throws extremely hard with a devastating changeup. And people don't practice it. I mean, you can get a machine to throw breaking balls, and you can get someone to throw breaking balls, but it's it's really hard to practice hitting a legitimate changeup. Um, so the guys that have had truly the best pitches that I've ever coached in my 20-plus years of college coaching have all had legitimate changeups. So, and it's something that could be learned, but a lot of guys don't because they're trying to get velocity and, and they're trying to get a breaking ball, but they don't they, – they're always – tweaking their changeup. They're never really learning and commanding and trusting their changeup. So it's definitely a passion. We're with Wayne Mazzoni here. Uh, he's, he's the pitching coach at Sacred Heart University. And uh, what we were alluding to there is he's got a series of videos on the Figure It Out Baseball website, um, really with about everything that you need to know on the changeup. So if, you're, if that's something that you're looking to incorporate or something you want to get better at, you can check out Coach Mazzoni's uh, videos there on, um, on figureitoutbaseball.com. Uh, Coach, you're on your way to speak at a high school today. Um, can you can you give us just sort of a, a rundown of what you plan on talking about there? Yeah, so this is uh, – I do many of these at high schools, not just baseball, all different uh, sports. And the audience is athletes and parents, guidance counselors and coaches, and the whole gist of the talk is what can you actually do as a high school athlete and parents to navigate the recruiting process. And I kind of break it down into a really a three-step process that they have to go to go through. Um, and obviously, I kind of said it before. If you're, the, the best way to get recruited is to be crazy good at whatever you do, right? If you're really good, recruiting gets pretty easy. But if, you know, you're that 
that 81, 82, three, you know, and, and you're just a solid player that needs to be seen a lot, chances are you might get overlooked. You're not going to stand out in an event like some other kids. So the whole idea is what what is the system or what's the steps you should take to go from being a high school athlete to being a one of the baseline six or seven percent that to get to play at the college level. So that that's what the talk is about what those steps are and how do you go about it. So if there's for that person that's listening that maybe is a, is a good player but doesn't <clears throat> isn't the guy that goes to a showcase and, and really really stands out with tools but just a good solid baseball player um, you know without uh, you know going too far into it just can you give us like one thing one, maybe one thing you would point to for that type of high school athlete any sport you know besides what you're doing in a game what can this person do to stand out to a coach to to find uh, you know help himself to get on a college uh, baseball, basketball, football roster. Yeah, that's the, there's really two immediate steps, and the majority of people I speak to are really at the beginning of the recruiting process. So the first two steps uh, both take some legwork. So, you know, you don't hear it and go, yeah, I got it all solved. It can take months and maybe a year. Um, step number one is what do I want out of a college experience? What are my grades? What do I want to study? Um, how far from home? Size of the school? Why I want to be in the city or the suburbs or the country. You know, you start to figure out about yourself and what you want. So you could start narrowing just the kinds of places you think you want to go to, not even factoring in the sport. And that's really done by just visiting schools. I mean, you know, anytime someone's traveling for a holiday or visit somebody, if you could pop into three or four local schools that are in the area and just go, do I like these kind of places? And ultimately, if you're able to say some things about what you want, you start to you start to shrink the list down because it's just overwhelming. It's an overwhelming amount of schools where you can attend and play college sports. So the the more factors you can shrink it down is is going to start getting you in the right direction. And then the second piece, and we kind of talked about it earlier, is how do you figure out how good are you at your sport? Because mostly you're using your own gut, or your parents are telling you how great you are. I mean, I went. We already said I went to a Division three school. You know, my dad, I'm 50 years old now, Jeff, and my dad still thinks I totally got screwed and should have went to Notre Dame on a full ride for both right? <laughs> you know, and parents think this because they love their kids, you know, and they only see a small group of the kids trying to play at that next level. So the more they can ask their high school coach or travel coach or a scout or go watch games or go get evaluated at a showcase, and say, hey, right, listen, you're probably a D2 player, maybe a couple of D1s you could play at, some of the better D3s. Now you have a list that's, that's manageable, and then it makes all the other steps much more easier to do. And, you know, you allude, alluded to it before. You've coached college baseball. You've been an associate scout. You still are. I mean, I guarantee you could take, you know, the local high school kids and grade them out and pretty much earmark where they're going to go based on their current trajectory. Now, they could get a lot faster and stronger and dedicate themselves and blossom, and maybe they change their path. But I've been doing this so long. So have you. So are the high school coaches, the travel coaches. We're usually pretty spot on of where we think a kid's going to go. So they've got to start asking people. And when you're able to narrow your list to 10 to 20, even 30, 40 schools, it just makes everything else much easier than going, yeah, I want to play anywhere at any college. It, it becomes overwhelming. In my experience, it's usually the kid that says, I'll play anywhere, 
Well, it takes that school from anywhere to call them for that kid to say, yeah, I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> so it's just exactly. a funny story, but there are um, – when I when I go out to scout guys locally, if I see some uncommitted kids, I will send off some emails to some coaches. I'll get I'll get video and send off an email and say like, hey, I think this kid might be able to play for you. He told me he is willing to play, you know, wherever this coach is. And there was one kid that legitimately said, I'll play anywhere. And I said, you're telling me you would go play in Canada? I, yeah, I played in Canada. You'd play in North Dakota. I'd play in North Dakota. <laughs> You'd play in California. I'd play in California. So he was kind of a to me, he had some things about him that, that screamed junior college. So a junior college from Montana called him, <laughs> and he very quickly said, yeah, I don't want to go to Montana. So it's uh, kids will say they'll play anywhere until they get a chance to play anywhere, and then they realize that it's not so true after all. Yeah, it's, it's like the guy that's out of work and says, I need a job, I'll do any job. And you get a job, and it's an awful job. It's not so fun to have that job anymore. <laughs> so let's just stick with recruiting. I'm really enjoying the recruiting conversation. Um, you know, you've written books on the topic. You have obviously been recruiting in college for a long time. You've been recruited as a student athlete. So let's just, let's stick with this. Um, what do you think coach is the most difficult thing to recruit when it comes to pitchers? Uh, just as a, as an example, I think probably one of the easiest things, one of the easiest things to recruit is velocity. You know, anybody can sit there with a gun and hold the gun up and say, well, that velocity plays or, or that velocity doesn't. What's, what, what's something that you have found difficult to gauge and that maybe is, uh, maybe, I don't, want to, I don't know if inaccurate is the right word, or maybe something's just inconsistent with recruiting, that sometimes you really like this, a kid shows up to campus and it's not quite what you thought. Is there anything you can, you can think of or point to with that? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, very good question, great question so, so far. This is, this is very near and dear to me, which is, you know, it's just the intangibles. It's the competitiveness. It's their work ethic. It's their grit, their stick to These are things you can't mention in watching a bullpen or even watching one game. I think one of the flaws of the current way we recruit with the amount of teams and tournaments and events is that you only get to see a kid, you know, a couple of times before you have to kind of move on. And ultimately, we'd be able to watch a kid time and time again to know how he's handles a bad umpire and a bad defense or getting ripped, you know, three batters in a row and how does he respond to that? And so clearly at the college level, the guys that just have the, the developed mental game, the, you know, the, the good habits, all that stuff, those are the guys that do the best at the college level, regardless of whether they pitch or play any position or probably any sport for that matter. And it's the hardest to judge. So, I mean, that's where you have to go on what a coach says about this, this kid. Um, you know, you're, you're basically trusting a coach to say, hey, listen, I love the way this kid pitches. Now tell me about him as a person. And most of the time they're, they're shooting you straight, but you, that's the, the hardest part to measure, and I don't think there's any clear way to do it, but ultimately that's the biggest deciding factor on how well they do in college. You kind of just answered this question, but I'd like to go a little more uh, into it, is just how, how honest are coaches that you talk to? And I'll ask this with prefacing that I very rarely – heard as a recruiter yeah you don't want this guy he's not really a team player he's you know he doesn't handle failure I, you know very very rarely heard that from a high school or a travel coach um and, and more more often than not you're hearing about what a great kid he is what a great leader he is and and maybe some of that is because at the high school level there's there's very little failure for those type of players and they don't really experience you know any great levels of failure until they're in college and maybe that brings out a different 
I don't know, different person, different personality traits yeah. can cause they're, they're dealing with failure in, in different situations. But let's just go back to the question. How, how honest do you feel like coaches are with you uh, when it comes to just the personality of the player that you're getting? Okay, so I'm going to answer that in two ways. And first of all, I would say 15, 20% of the time I hear from coaches, you don't want that kid. I get that a lot more than it sounded like you got uh, for whatever reason. But I definitely get that more than, than you'd think. Um, I've never really known a high school coach to steer me wrong. Um, they're, you know, just the nature of it, they're not in it. They, they don't get any added benefit by getting a kid necessarily to the next level. It doesn't exactly help their program. They're, they're helping this kid just to, to be nice. Um, and most of the travel coaches, you know, 90% of them are good guys. They're, they're trying to help their kids get to the next level. But I think because it benefits their brand, their business, some of them are not to be trusted. Some of them are over-promoting kids or, you know, they have a kid that's not necessarily good enough for you, and they're, they're trying to promote that kid. So um, you're right there? Yes, sorry. Okay, <laughs> no problem. So, yeah, I think that it's a case-by-case basis with the travel coach, whether he's really shooting you straight. And, again, most of them are pretty good, but just some of them have a reputation of, like, don't trust what that guy says. You know, it's just from a track record of they might have steered you wrong on another kid. Part of the difference between your experience and mine might be that I, you know, I, I coached for eight years, but I also coached at five different schools. And I was, I, you know, I was, as a young coach, I think a lot, a lot of young coaches do, and you kind of do this to a point, you're, you're moving around a lot. And uh, I never got a chance to stay anywhere for more than a couple of years, and it's difficult to develop relationships with coaches. That might be part of it is just that you've probably been, uh, you've been dealing with coaches I'm sure there are some coaches you've been dealing with for a long time that you have your relationship with. And most of the time I was talking to coaches that I really didn't have any past with uh, in a lot of cases. Um, but regardless. Yeah, um, no, that makes a lot of sense, absolutely. And with As far as, you know, just players and, and kind of going back to what they experienced in college and, and probably why I'm assuming why uh, you think it's one of the most difficult things to assess is that is there really is not a lot of failure. But also there's another, another thing that they don't experience a lot in high school is not being the guy, <laughs> not being the frontline guy, whether it's on the mound or whether it's, you know, a position player who for the first time is experiencing not being a starter. Um, you know, how much of that do you think becomes a factor when, you know, when it's difficult to assess a real character, you know, how much of that do you think plays in when a guy comes on campus and just and kind of deals with for the first time that he's not the center of attention anymore? Yeah, I think that that's definitely uh, an issue. And, and the reality is, you, you know, when you get to a new place, obviously the, the kids who are already on the team are going to kind of take you in and they're going to help you along. But at the same time, you know, they're looking at you a little cross-eyed, like this kid's here to take my innings or take my at-bats or take my spot. And, you know, it's competitive just to, to get time as a freshman. So that's, that's a big piece. And then if you do crack in and, and you do get to play, no one takes it easy because it's your first time on the mound or in the batter's box or you're new. No one cares, you know. So, I mean, we tell that to our guys all the time. We're, we're prepping to play, you know, a big-time program or whatnot. They could care less that we're practicing on a field that's plowed, you know, that, that it's February. We're shoveling snow to take ground balls, and they're in their state-of-the-art stadium in, in 85 degrees. They don't take it easy when we show up because of that. So, you know, a, a kids do have to learn. That, that is a process to go from being the man all the time to it's going to be really, really competitive. But that's many will blossom in that situation, and that only makes them want to get better, and others will falter. I mean, that's it's, 
something that has to be, you know, practiced. If you were speaking to someone who's in that situation right now, maybe somebody who just experienced their first semester, their first year in college, and they're sort of experiencing that, um, the difficulty of, of failing more, and it, you know, it's a lot more difficult to hit all of a sudden, it's a lot more difficult to get people out, and maybe their coaches haven't done the best job of, uh, of helping the player through that situation. But if you were speaking to that player right now, what would be something that you would just kind of say to encourage that player or to give them a little bit of perspective? Um, that's a great question, too. Which I think it's make sure that you have a week-long, a month-long, a year-long, a life-long, whatever it is, habits and routines that are just constantly trying to get you better. And then, you know, when, when things do start to click, those are the things you're still going to continue to work on. So if you build, you know, not every entrepreneur, not everyone in every walk of life always succeeds instantly. In fact, you're better off sometimes if you don't, right? There's many books written about how kids learn by failure and how anyone in business learns by failure. So there's merit to that. stinks while you're going through it. It's not great to get, you know, your, your new cutter that you're working on pounded all over the place. But eventually when you get, get it right, it's going to help you really grow and be successful long-term. And the fact is, I tell my guys all the time, everything I'm saying to you, I'm saying to win a regional game, to get to a regional and win a regional game. I'm not teaching you a bunch of defense to have it figured out here on October 15th in the fall with no one around. We need to do this bunt defense like it's January, you know, June 5th, and we're playing at Clemson, and you need to throw out a guy who's turned down the third round going down the line home to first. <laughs> so, you know, that, you've got to pursue excellence. And eventually when you keep doing that and you have these habits, the cream rises to the top. So there's, there's always some bumps in the road short term, but, but the winners show themselves over the long term. So what are some – Wayne Mazzoni habits for success. What do you do in your own life, daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it may be? What are some things that you do to kind of keep yourself on track, um, you know, make sure that you are doing some things you need to do to continue to be your best? Oh, boy, that's a great – another unbelievable question. I mean, the fact is this is something I try to impart on the college guys, although I know I wasn't ready at their age. But, you know, I'm much more of a learner now lifelong learner now than I was back then. Back then in high school, college, you were just trying to get through it to get the grade. Now I just love learning. So whether it's about baseball or, or anything. So me personally, I have two things that are crucial to me. Number one is I try to get a very, very, very difficult workout in every day. So I, in, in 2019, in June, I did my first ever Ironman, uh, which was a great experience, uh, swimming, biking, running at a level I've never done before. Um, now I'm doing CrossFit. So I, I wake up every day and have to get in a very difficult workout early in the morning before my day even gets started. So that's one key piece that keeps me locked in and keeps me energized, helps me sleep, makes me nice with my wife and kids and all that. Um, and, then, and then the second thing is I try to do some type of mindfulness uh, thing, whether that's a guided meditation, breathing, some kind of awareness. Uh, it's easier now to get distracted in life more than ever with these crazy phones that we have, you know. Um, so you have to carve out time to just be, just be where your feet are, breathe, enjoy your company. Uh, I think it's the biggest issue all humans face in 2019, 2020, or whenever anyone listens to this, is how to be where you are. Just enjoy the conversation, enjoy. I mean, that's what baseball practice has become in a lot of ways. 
I love that the guy has three hours off their phone, off playing Fortnite, Call of Duty. They're just locked into what they're doing. Uh, and the earlier you can learn to just enjoy the moment, because life is a gift. You don't know how many of these you're going to have. That would be something I would try to impart to everybody. Words of a wise coach, for sure. The mindfulness. Oh, I, got gray, I got gray hair. It didn't come there by accident. <laughs> I love it. Um, the mindfulness is something that I uh, have been wanting to learn and have been making an attempt to learn more about recently. And we've got another another contributor on the website, uh, Sarah Erdner, who's done uh, a couple of series of videos on the mental game. And, and mindfulness is something that she and I have talked a lot about. Uh, could you just describe to people, you said, you know, be where your feet are, but how, how do you do that? How do you, as a as a teenager, you know, what, what does a teenager need to do or, or should be doing to just kind of take some time to uh, to be mindful of, uh, of where they are? I, I know it's maybe a, just a, a backwards type of question, but um, does somebody who's, who's got the phone in their hand all, their time, all the time and has got a million things happening, and I, and I really believe that kids today are, are are busier and are being asked to do more things than maybe any other generation before. So what is a young person supposed to do or what can a parent encourage their, their child to do just to be more mindful day to day? Okay. So, which is a terrific question. I think if you, if you take baseball specifically, if you ask any kid playing at any level from, from a little leaguer to a pro, what percentage of your performance is based on your mental? We know it has physical, your height, your weight, your speed, your strength, your flexibility. We know it has skill, your velocity, your curve, your command, your swing, your technique of fielding, et cetera. And then your mental game, your thoughts, your inner talk. If you ask them how do you break that down, most kids are going to tell you anywhere from 50 to 80% of their performance is mental-based. And then the next question is always, okay, if it's that important, what do you do to practice it? And then they always look at you with like a deer in the headlights. So what we do with our college guys, and man, they love it, is we actually lead them on it. So whether it's on the field, in the classroom, starting off practice with three minutes of breathing, we make it a part of everything that we do and, and then show them here's technology. You know, here's, there's probably five or six or seven apps you could get on your phone that are tremendous. Um, I use it when I do my own thing. It's, it's almost impossible unless you're the Dalai Lama. To, to, you know, lie down on, on a bed or sit in a chair and do unbelievable meditation. But when you have it guided and someone's leading you through it, it becomes much easier. And then when you start to, to do it like anything, when you start practicing, you get better at it, you enjoy it, and then you see it translating to the field. And in many ways, 10 minutes of guided meditation four times a week will make you a better player. And when they start to actually see it, and I do things with my college guys after every outing, they have to fill out a, you know, a post-outing thing, you know, of a variety of things. Uh, and, and one of the things is were you, you know, how did your, how did your mental training work help you in this outing? Or were you mentally where you wanted to be? Were you worried about your ERA or why coach was warming somebody up or the umpire or that you didn't have your best curveball? And, and we talk about it. So it's just like anything, whatever gets focused on improves or whatever gets measured gets improved. It just has to be something that becomes important to them. That's all. So for somebody that is listening to that and, and is kind of intimidated by mindfulness or by um, the thought of meditating, maybe that you know their idea of meditation is is what you know you see on on TV or in a movie or, or whatever. Well, uh, tell me, uh, is there 
that you're aware of? Is there a uh, an app or a website or or something that people can people that are interested but are maybe intimidated by it that maybe they can go to to kind of get started in a in a less intimidating way um, or to give them just a better idea of really what guided meditation is about? Yeah, no question. So uh, I'll I'll preface that with saying um, one of our former players at Sacred Heart, a shortstop, actually funny enough named Zach Short, just got added to the 40-man roster uh, for the Cubs. It just recently happened. When he got uh, drafted into the Cubs system in 2016, first thing he, he sent me a text like three days later, he goes, holy mackerel, we're doing mindfulness. So the Cubs organization teaches and practices mindfulness and yoga and all those things. So first of all, they see these pro clubs doing it it's impactful. I think every major league team now has a mental skills coach, and they have them through the minor league system. Um, but the apps that I have seen, there's uh, one called Calm. There's Headspace. There's 10% Happier and the one that I use, which is called Insight Timer. Um, plus, they could probably go to YouTube and for free just type in, you know, guided sports meditation or and find something that clicks for them. Everyone's a little bit different, and you'll find something that hits. But when you're just, like, actually told by a coach or say, you know what, for 10 minutes I'm going to focus on this, and at the end you feel better about yourself and you feel more focused and calm and helps you study better or be nicer to your girlfriend or, you know, helps you practice better or play better, you start buying into it. And you certainly read stories all the time about pros that improve their mental game and thus improve their performance. And ultimately that's what kids want. They want to be better on the field. No question, and I, and I know for me personally, um, not that people want to hear about me personally, they came here to listen to you, but I have three kids that are five years and younger, and, and it's the, it's very difficult to find time to exercise some days and to uh, to meditate, but I know that on days that I do it, I'm just, I'm just better in all facets of my life as far as how you, really how you interact and treat other people to just how you how you're feeling about yourself, and just kind of kind of the the, the clarity of your mind. So I, I can just speak to it personally as well. I'm not I, you know I'm not a coach and I'm not an athlete anymore, but just in, in your basic life, everyday life, it's it's impactful. Well, and I'll I'll tell you you know a, a couple things, which is number one, um, you need it as much as anyone, right? Just like they say on an airplane, put on your mask first before you help anyone else. If you're better at Jeff Stanek being Jeff you're going to be better, you know, to your kids. And we probably don't want to cover it on this podcast, but when the record button is off, I'll give you some very good ideas for you personally of how you can get some exercise and mindfulness during the course of, of having a job, being a husband, and raising three very young kids. I, I can give you some tips from been there, done that. <laughs> I appreciate that. When the record button's off, we're going to get into it. Yep, you got it. <laughs> Um, let me ask you just one or two more questions, Coach Mazzoni, and then I'll let you go. Um, we've been talking about a lot of great things. We've, we've gotten in a lot of good things, but I, I'd like to just kind of, um, I guess, switch gears just a little bit and ask you about yourself, um, which really we haven't spent any time talking about you, which I probably would have expected, you know, coming into this other than kind of getting through your bio, um, you know, and a couple of questions I asked about just things that, you, that you've done. But I, I want to ask you a little bit just about you as a coach. You've been coaching for a long time, um, but you still you you sound you know invigorated when you talk about coaching, and it's something that you that you clearly enjoy doing. How have has Wayne Mazzoni 
progressed from a 1992 graduate assistant at Nova Southeastern to the current pitching coach at Sacred Heart. What are some uh, some ways that you have grown and progressed as a coach that that maybe have been the most impactful on your own career? Uh, another great question. Um, I would say that with the exception of working way too many weekends, um, coaching is the best job in the world. I mean, it's absolutely the best job in the world. And I think it's that for a variety of reasons, but one is the guys I'm with never age. When you get too old, we send you off, we graduate, yeah, and we get the young pups in, you know. So every, no matter what, I'm dealing with 17 to 23 constantly. So those kids have a lot of energy. You better be able to keep up. I'll jump in and do lifts with them from time to time, uh, all kinds of things. It's just, you know, throw batting practice. The kids, number one, keep you young. Um, I would say that in uh, the way I've grown in terms of coaching would be two things, and I still have room to grow, goodness gracious, and that's what's another enjoyable thing about it. There's some great baseball people out there, and, you know, I've listened already to some of the other podcasts that you've recorded. Um, I feel old because you did a podcast with J.J. Edwards, who I coached <laughs> at Sacred Heart, who is one heck of a player and kid and is, gonna, is already a tremendous coach and is going to keep being a great coach. Um, even though, I, personally, I'd never let him know that because I don't want to let his head get to <laughs> Yeah, that. I won't but tell no, him either for the same reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is, you know, in the beginning, I tried to correct kids too quickly. I mean, I got screamed at by a kid in 1992, my first year coaching, when he struck out in an at-bat. And before he put his bat down, I was trying to tell him what he did wrong. And he just lit me to pieces. And I realized, well, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to hear about my swing the moment I just struck out. So, you know, I've learned how to deliver the message, you know, that that's, that's number one. Um, and then secondly, I've just, as things we talked about before, these habits that I've learned about, how to stay off your phone sometimes, how to, how to actually meditate, how to exercise, how to eat right. You try to pass those on because I'm coaching people. You know, I want to win games. I want to make major leaguers, but I just want to make people better people. And uh, sometimes they'll get the message when they're a sophomore and sometimes they'll get the message when they're 32 and, and they're changing jobs and they got two kids or, you know, you never know. I mean, I get texts and calls from guys that want to change careers and need advice. And that's the stuff, kind of the counseling side of it that I enjoy. I still enjoy, of course, the baseball piece of it, the competitive nature of it. But um, it, that, the part of helping people grow never gets old. And that's why I think it's the greatest job and, and I'm passionate about it. Have your goals changed at all as a coach since you first got in? As you mature, as you you grow, and you go through this, through this, everything you've been through, have your goals changed as a coach? Do you mean my personal goals or your, the goals for my team? Personal, your 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 personal goals as a coach. Oh, a, a thousand percent. I mean, I've now been at Sacred Heart fourteen years. I've had opportunities to leave for the quote unquote bigger, better paying job. You know, whatever. Um, and I haven't taken it because I kind of got to a place where I love my house. I love my neighborhood. I love my wife and kids are very happy. My personal life is way overtaken my professional life in terms of the big picture. So, I mean, I'll look at sometimes these dudes, Lord knows in college football that have had 17 jobs and I get it, you know, um, but you know, my wife is a teacher. She, we like our lives. So what, what ultimately Back in my 20s, I would go, you know, I just want to be the head coach at Clemson. Now it's I just want to be a coach. You know, I don't, I don't care 
what the circumstances are, great field, not a great, I still want to improve, but I just want to coach people. So I've changed in terms of what I thought, you know, I thought I'd, you know, you always thought you'd be happier at a bigger, better program, and now I don't feel that. I just think that's such a, probably is something that a lot of people will experience as they get older, no matter what their job is, but I, I just, I like to hear it from other people and love to hear your perspective on things. Um, you know, I've really been enjoying this podcast, and I, and I hate to let it go. Um, we'll probably have to do another one of these at some point. I think there's still a lot of things to talk about. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's been a good conversation, but if you don't, if, if you have time for us for uh, one more question, I'd like to ask you one more question. Absolutely. 100%. If you were talking to a young coach or, you know, just say just you, you guys have a volunteer there that's a, a young guy, 23 years old out of school. Um, and, and you may have already answered this to a point, but what would you tell that coach? Just blanket advice. The guy's got his first coaching job. He's young. He's hungry. He's, he's energetic. What would be maybe one piece of advice that you would give to that coach when he's first getting started out? Uh, the beginning of college coaching in baseball and probably every other sport but football and basketball is just kind of awful. Not in terms of the responsibilities and that you get you're around coaching and you get to make an impact, but now you're a couple years out of college. You're making zero to five thousand dollars. You've got three buddies in college that you used to room with, or three knuckleheads that make $65,000 selling copiers, and you're going, what in the world am I doing with my life? You know, my parents are screaming at me, get out of the house. I can't get my, take my girlfriend to a good dinner. And the, the answer is just to stick it out. I mean, you know, the gap in my coaching resume was from me just going, how long can I keep doing this at this amount of money? And said, I got to start making legitimate money. And then when I met my future wife, I said, I found the woman. Now I, now I got to get back into the career that I always loved, and that got me back into coaching. But the beginning of coaching in in baseball and non-revenue-producing sports at most places is just terrible. So if you know you want to do it, invest in yourself, learn, network, stick it out for the long haul, and you're going to be absolutely a-okay. If you go, you know, I don't know if I really like this, I don't like coaching, I don't like this and that and the other thing, get out now, start getting into another career and build yourself up there. But, you know, that soul-searching in the early part of after college was the hardest time of my life, and I'm going to guess it's the hardest part of, of just about everybody's life here. You don't have your buddies. You're not on a team. You don't have professors. You don't have an advisor. It's I found it, you know, 22 to 25, 26 being the torturous time of my life. <laughs> just, a, just a great perspective overall, Coach Mazzoni. I, I've really enjoyed this podcast. Um, I think what, that we should absolutely schedule another one because there are so many areas, so many things to talk about that we really we didn't even really get into a lot of pitching stuff today, uh, which I'd like to pick your brain about a lot of that uh, as well. But for everyone that's listening, this is Wayne Mazzoni, who's with us today. He's the pitching coach at Sacred Heart University. Um, he's been there since 2006. Uh, a really well-spoken, very bright guy, great perspective, and, and certainly wise beyond your years. Um, Coach Mazzoni, it's been a, a real pleasure having you here today. I can't thank you enough for, for you know, choosing to join me here on this podcast today. Well, and I want to kind of write back at you. I want to thank you because, you know, you've got a lot going on in your life, and yet you're still doing this. Um, and, you know, if, if from this podcast and the other ones that you do, if a, if a couple of nuggets go to a couple of people, then it's all worthwhile. So I want to thank you for doing it because I think you're really on the right path. This was absolutely fantastic and really enjoyable.
very, very enjoyable for me as well. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, Coach, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back here at some point, and best of luck to you going forward. All right, sounds great, Jeff.